Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. We'd love to meet you, so come visit us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. at the Viscardi Center at 201 IU Willits Road in Albertson, New York. Now, Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. And a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward. Remember to shop at smile.amazon.com and select the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to see you soon. Let's just uh, offer up a prayer as we transition into God's Word here. Lord, we're uh, just thanking you so much for this incredible privilege that we had to be a part of uh, Night to Shine. And uh, for all the people who uh, served there, who helped organize and lead, for all the people that showed our guests uh, just some extra love and compassion, and for all those that uh, helped make it possible, who underwrote the cost. Lord, it's it was a, a, a true blessing, and thank, we thank you for allowing us to be a part of it. We pray now, Lord, as we come to the study of your word, that you would cause our hearts to be sensitive to the Spirit's leading, that we might learn and grow and be challenged. And as a result of being here today, that we would be more and more transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. We pray that in your Son's name. Amen. We know the image of rose-colored glasses. We know people who look at the world through rose-colored glasses, and it really means that they just see everything around them with a certain hue, a certain tint, and it's usually means it's an, it usually means it's an optimistic one, uh, if not maybe a little naive. But I think that every one of us sees the world through colored glass, and I think that that colored glass is shaped by our culture. So what color glasses do you look at the world through? Another way of asking this question is, why do we actually do what we do? Why do we dress the way we do? Why do we speak the way we do? Why do we act this way or dress that way? Why do we despise those but delight in them? The answer is often culture. What is culture? Culture is described a whole lot of different ways. Here's one effort at it. It's largely made up of the artifacts, the language, the rituals, the ethics, the institutions, and the narratives, the stories that shape our lives. So it's all of the stuff all around us, all the time, that shape us into the people who, who we are. It's how we live, what we value. And the importance of culture in, the, in this conversation simply cannot be overstated. We really are creatures of culture being shaped by it. L business leaders will cite the maxim that culture eats strategy for breakfast. And what they mean by this is that it doesn't, it doesn't matter how great your plans are as a company. 
It doesn't matter how hard you work your strategies. And they might be all lined up and laid out and on a big flow chart somewhere in the business and everybody might know them. All those strategies are fine. They're helpful, but they actually will always be dominated by the culture of the organization. So culture will eat your strategies for breakfast. So you can work as hard as you want, but in the end, the culture will determine where you will go and what you will accomplish and how you will accomplish it. And that's because culture works very often behind the scenes, sometimes even at the subconscious level, perhaps maybe more than even sometimes. And there are many different lenses that the, that the dominant culture wants you to look through, and not all of them are good. You know, why is it that parents will bribe and cheat their kids' way into an elite school? What would make them do that? Well, they live in a culture that says my status and privilege warrant bad behavior as long as it is for the good of my kids. Of course, you would never articulate it like that. It would, you would never even identify it like that. But something drives you to make those kinds of decisions. It's a set of beliefs and cultural expectations and values that would have you do it. Maybe you grew up in a racist home. You didn't think of it as a racist home. It's just simply the air that you breathe. And now, as an adult, you're noticing you're having a hard time not judging people who are different from you. These are cultural impacts. Maybe you were raised where violence towards kids was the norm. You might not even realize that raising kids with kindness is the better way. If you're surrounded by people who act like everyone is out to get them, and you start to live out of fear and protectionism rather than with an open-handed generosity. See, we're creatures of our culture, and that isn't always good news. But if you want some amazingly hopeful news, it's that God wants to meddle in your culture. He wants to meddle in your culture. He wants to do more than that. He wants to lift you up out of it. He wants to set you above your culture. He wants to give us a hope that we can actually transcend our culture and that we do not need to be enslaved by it. We're going to be looking at the book of Ruth in the Bible. We'll be starting in chapter 1, verse 22. But we're actually looking at this book for the whole of this series called Hope. And so because we've already been in it a couple of weeks, I want to give you a little bit of, a ba of background to the narrative. These are four unbelievably powerful little chapters. They're a great story uh, and uh, very well crafted in the ancient world, considered one of the highlights uh, of literature of the ancient world. But we're already a, a little bit into it, so I want to give you a little bit of the background for those who, who hadn't heard the last couple of weeks. We, the story centers on or begins with a man named Elimelech and his wife, Naomi. And they are Israelites, but they left Israel to travel to a land called Moab. Now, if you're reading through the scriptures, you will find out that at this time in history, the nation of Israel was faced with some 
absolutely horrifying uh, cultural situations and circumstances. It was a wretched place. People were treating everyone else poorly, and especially women were being treated uh, terribly. There was lots of immorality. There was little kindness and even less justice in the nation of Israel. That being said, for them to leave Israel at a time of famine and go to the land of Moab was, was even worse news. Moab was a very corrupt culture that had begun in grotesque sin and for generations had been cruel to the Israelites. So for an Israelite to leave home and then go to Moab was a terrible thing indeed. Now, Elimelech dies in Moab, and so do his two sons. Now, of course, we know in the ancient cultures that men were favored over women. So now we have Naomi, who was left without husband and without sons. So the author is setting us up to really experience the the precariousness of her terrible situation. And all she has left is this daughter-in-law, a Moabitess, Ruth. What good is a Moabite daughter-in-law? That's what the audience would have been asking when they were first listening to and reading this letter. So then Naomi decides to leave Moab and return home. She comes to Bethlehem, which was her home, and that's the little city in the town of Judah, uh, in the area of Judah, just near, uh, near Jerusalem. And so she ends up traveling back, and Ruth, her daughter-in-law, decides to go with her, which makes no sense according to their dominant culture. See, Naomi is not her blood. And we all know that blood is, is thicker than water, right? I mean, there's nothing more important than blood in many of the cultures that we grew up in. Ruth would also be choosing a foreign woman over her own family. So she's picking a woman. People are going to say, why? And a mother-in-law? Hey, what's going on here? I mean, if, she, if Ruth had gone back home, at least she would have the protection of her father and her brothers, and they probably would have been able to marry her off again so that she could have what they all would have valued as a meaningful life. I mean, what allegiance does she owe Naomi? The family could benefit from her return. So all along, we start seeing some cultural shifts that are taking place and how Ruth is deciding against her dominant culture. And already we're starting to be challenged in what that might mean to us, the reader. But then we meet Boaz, and he is this kind man who lets Ruth glean in his fields, which is really just a provision of the Old Testament that it was a law to help the poor so that they wouldn't starve. They'd be able to go and pick up the leftover grain in a stranger's field uh, so that uh, they wouldn't starve. And so that's where we come to in our text now in chapter 1, verse 22. And I'm going to read an extended part of this chapter, way more than I normally would, but I love the story so much, and I want us to hear the whole of it here on Sundays in the next few weeks. So, verse 22. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, 
she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, Who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, She is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, Please, let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field. And don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. And she asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread, dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all that she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some of the stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. She, gathered, she carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He's one of our guardian redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him, because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. See, Ruth and Boaz could have gone with the dominant culture of their day, where their, that current culture where family surpasses everything where patriarchy rather than equality is promoted, where toxic masculinity dominates women, where self-centeredness rules the roost. And yet Ruth and Boaz didn't. I mean, they certainly could have. They could have gone along with their current culture. It'd be easy to do. But instead, they were living by a kingdom culture. Boaz... He chooses kindness when most of his countrymen were choosing brutality. 
Boaz chose to sacrifice for the good of others rather than choose what would merely benefit himself. You know, I think about our Night to Shine group, and I'm like, you know, so many people, they sacrifice, they give them themselves rather than simply look out for themselves. You see, it's a shift from a self-centered culture, which is what our society teaches us, into a giving culture. I mean, it would certainly be easy for us to make sure we keep all of our resources, our time, our energy, our money, our creativity to guarantee that we had a great night out. That's what people would expect. That's the normal culture. And you get a group of people who say, no, that's not what I'm going to do. I'm going to use my creativity. I'm going to use my energy. I'm going to use my financial resources to make certain someone else has a great night out. We're seeing that's a shift from the current culture to a kingdom culture. And in this way, that we, we can become not merely creatures of our culture, but we can actually become creators of culture. But to do that, we've got to critique our current culture. So many ways we see this already happening in the book of Ruth. You know, people often put their ethnic loyalty above all else. Read the news any week of the year, and you will find a group of people who will be putting ethnic loyalty above all, who they identify with above everyone around them. This is the source of all of our ethnic wars, of genocide. It's the source of most of our terrorism. It's certainly the source of our nation's own racist battles, without a doubt. So will you put your birth affiliation or your affiliation of choice before Jesus? It's a question the scriptures face us with. How about patriarchy? Patriarchy is dead now, right? We solved it. We killed that one. It's all done. I mean, hardly. If the Me Too movement has taught us anything, it is that women are still belittled, girls still scorned over boys, preference is given to sons, inside and outside the church. We see this, still, this same thing still happening. The unwanted advances, the disrespectful jokes, the condescension, there is absolutely no place for any of these things in a kingdom culture, and we can shape that. Or you can consider the preference that cultures all around the globe give to boy babies rather than girls. Even to, to the, so, as going so far as to eliminate the girls before birth. This is what we now face. We have cultures around the globe that will dispose of children that complicate their lives. Whether it's a simply inconvenient time for them or maybe it's because they have special needs. Now, you might say, well, listen, this is, this is good. I'm already, I already got this down. I mean, I am, I'm a post-patriarchy, post-misogynism, post-tribalism kind of a person, so I guess I'm crushing it. I got all the lessons learned from Ruth. I don't know. Are we really sure that we're not slipping into our own current culture that is still at odds with a kingdom culture? I think we are. I know people who will sacrifice everything on the altar of their biological family. What does that lead to? We see families that are wrecked by workaholism. They have crushing debt. They put unrealistic pressure on their kids to perform. 
And all of these things happen when we put family at the center of our existence rather than putting God at the center of our existence. And see, Jesus comes on the scene. He turns all of this on his head. We even see it with Boaz. Boaz risks his own family. He risks his own legacy for the sake of Naomi and Ruth. I think so many of us, we struggle with this because we let our lives revolve around our kids rather than adding our kids to our family's mission in this world. All of our time, energy, creativity, our money, it goes into making certain that our kids succeed. What does that even mean? What, how we define success is still a product of our culture. And it's not necessarily a kingdom culture. When we say it, what do we normally mean? Well, it means that they go, you know, they finally get into their reach school, which we can barely pay for, so they can get a high-paying job that is extremely demanding with lots of hours, so they can go on and repeat the same mistakes we just made. That's what we're buying into. And there are many other cultural accommodations that we live by today that a kingdom culture would free us from. Like, let's take politics, because it's fun to talk about politics in church. So let's talk politics for just a moment. You know, Christians, they affiliate with this party or that, and they put their hope for, the, for social transformation into one of these corrupt political parties. And then what ends up happening is some can't even distinguish between their party's platforms and actual biblical Christianity. And when we do that, when we merge these things and think that they are the same thing, then we are guaranteed to end up with a seriously truncated version of Christianity that half of the people around you will find offensive. Of course, of course it's not actual Christianity. Listen, if the mention of politics at church, if, that's upset, if that upsets you and you want to rant and you want to send an email or something, that's fine. Send, send it over to us at c. H-R-I-S at beacon.church. Again, that's C-H-R-I-S, beacon.send it, send it right over. It'll be pages we'll send back to you. Think about the condescension we have toward other groups. I mean, don't we turn up our noses at those who are not in our circle? We look down at people who dress differently or drive cars or don't live in the neighborhoods if they're not quite up to snuff. I mean, don't we sort of pity people with this little arrogant sort of twist when they struggle in the basic economic ways? Like, oh, man, it's really bad that they're facing that. I mean, I guess they couldn't pull themselves out of it. You know, we add that little spin at the end. We've got to critique our culture and, and, and find out where does it fail to line up with God's kingdom culture. And there are so many examples of this. I mean, are, are you pretty enough? Are you sexy enough? Are these even the right questions that we ought to be asking? Because if you base it on the world standards and on your own insecurities, I assure you, you are not. But you see, we're already far down on the wrong questions. Are you successful enough? What does your family say? What do you feel? What does your spouse say about it? Are you successful? You know, this whole thing, this success thing, it even shows up in the churches. Get a gathering of pastors together, and very quickly you'll start to, to, to hear the judgment about those churches that can't quite 
do it. The ones in decline. Do you make enough money? Do you have enough respect? Do you belong to all of the right places? Maybe it's that country club or it's that daycare or it was that college that you absolutely needed to be in. I mean, do you actually have enough likes to make you happy? Do you have enough followers, enough friends? I mean, isn't everyone else really doing more exciting things, enjoying more and even better vacations? I mean, doesn't everyone have cuter pets than you do? I mean, you've seen Pepper. You know it's true. I mean, are there kids more handsome, more talented, smarter, getting more money for college than your kids? You see, the list goes on and on and on. This is just a taste of the cultural lies that quietly and secretly and powerfully shape us. We've got to critique the current culture and we have to subvert it with a kingdom culture. See, if Jesus isn't, the cent- isn't central in your life, then you are going to be defined by your current culture. But we need to create a kingdom culture. See, the gospel, the good news of salvation and hope that Jesus Christ, he comes in like a bull in this twisted china closet that we live in, and he starts breaking down all of these shallow cultural artifacts. And it's a good trashing. And we need to pay attention to what he's doing because if you put your ethnic identity, your family identity, your political identity above Christ, then you are actually subject to your current culture. If you struggle with racism and sexism or economic discrimination, then we need to yield ourselves to Christ and run toward his kingdom culture. If your insecurities about your appearance or about your bank account or about your accomplishments, if they overwhelm you, then you are being enslaved by a damaged culture. And we've got to supplant it with a kingdom culture. I mean, think of Jesus. Think about the example he gives us, right? He's he's in heaven living in the midst of the beauty of the Trinity and all of the splendor that heaven affords. And he leaves the perfect culture of heaven to come down to earth and die at the hands of a dangerous and an oppressive culture. Why? Why would he do this? He did it so that we could receive the gift of salvation, the gift of forgiveness, and the presence of the Spirit so that we could be freed from a dangerous and oppressive culture so that we could increasingly live in the perfect kingdom culture. He's already blazed the trail and he gives us the spirit so we can now rid ourselves of the cultural artifacts that are working against the kingdom. You might be hearing this and you're thinking, man, I've just, I screwed up so many times. I messed up. I'm, you know, I just, I don't understand. I try, but I'm, I'm such a product of these things and I know it. You might be down on yourself because of your constant struggling, but here's the thing. That's a our response of, uh, of shame and guilt and of turning away from Jesus, that's still a part of your current corrupt culture. That's not what Jesus is calling you to. He himself is calling you with tenderness and with kindness and with the offer of forgiveness. And he's saying, come along out of your broken culture into my glorious one. 
We need to make a break from our current culture wherever it runs foul of this kingdom culture. That's what Ruth did. She made a clean and a permanent break with her culture to embrace and submit herself to a kingdom culture. And she did it with no promise that things were actually going to work out. But how amazingly and incredibly they did. And then we stumble onto the, the, the example of Boaz and we get all blown away because Boaz creates this, this kingdom culture wherever he actually wielded influence. Right? We see it in verse 8. It says, so Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. He knows that in another field, she isn't going to be safe and she isn't going to be taken care of. And there's going to be all sorts of trouble and heartache waiting for her in another field because he knows he has, he has influence in his field. See, he's creating in this, in, this, in this field of Boaz, he's creating a place that matters. Right? He tells her, stay here with the women who work for me. Here's a foreign woman who knows only Naomi. No friends, no other family whatsoever. And he says, come, stay with, stay with the women who are here. They'll, they will accept you and, and you'll be a part of this new tribe. He folds her right in to this family. Verse 9, he says, watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. He knew what the outside culture was like. He knew what it would be like in the other fields. He even knew that many of his own men might wrestle with these problems. He says, listen, not here, not in Boaz's field will these things ever happen. You will be safe wherever I wield influence. Even Naomi recognizes it at the end of the chapter. She says, you know, it's, it's good for you to go with the women because you, in someone else's field, you might be harmed. And then there's this sweet little line. It says, and whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. They would have expected the women to go get the water. They would have expected the foreign women especially. They're the ones who should have been serving the hardworking men in the field. And he's like, no, no, listen, the men are going to bring up the water. That's part of what we do in the field of Boaz. And you... Ruth, drink freely. Don't ever be thirsty. Not when you're living in a field managed by Boaz. Reminds me of another man who, who had a conversation about water with another foreign woman. Jesus and the woman at the well. And he starts talking and asks her for a drink and one thing leads to another. And all of a sudden, you know, his disciples, they don't like the fact that he's talking to a woman. The fact that he's talking to a farm, this is even, this is nothing but trouble. And Jesus is like, hey, listen, if you were to ask me, I would give you living water so that you would never thirst again. Not just water for, for your parched lips, but water for your parched soul. It's a picture of what we can do when we create a field of Boaz. Right? We remember that, that culture is made up of the artifacts, language, rituals, ethics, institutions, the narratives that shape our lives. And in a field of Boaz, it becomes a place where the kingdom culture dominates. So now we have meaningful artifacts. We have encouraging language. We have honorable rituals. We have transcendent ethics. We have just institutions. We have a redemptive narrative. That's what lives in a field of Boaz. And can you imagine what it would be like if each and every one of us committed to creating a field of Boaz wherever we wield any sort of influence? What would it be like? 
to live in a place, to create a space where Naomi and Ruth can experience a kingdom culture. I mean, you could do whatever. You could do it in your home. You could start today. You could go home today, and you could decide that I am now going to create a field of Boaz here in my home in a way that my kids and my spouse might never have experienced before. That's what I am going to do for them. I'm going to take kingdom culture principles and apply them right here in my home starting today. You can do it at your place of work. That's certainly what Boaz did. You know how those places can become toxic? What can you do to shift it? Your friend group, what can you do? So oftentimes Christians make this terrible mistake and they say, oh man, I'm trying to get my, my life together with Christ and so I'm going to pull away from, from everyone that might trip me up. No, take the power of Christ, his resurrection, the spirit, and press into those relationships and create a field of Boaz there where you can start to practice and shine kingdom principles to people who desperately need it. What about your online social network? If there is ever a place that needs a field of Boaz, it would be there. Does it really have to be all about arguing and, and, and challenging and hate? And Does it have to be filled with all of this? What about all the self-centeredness that's there? Does it have to be about that? Provoking a, a degree of envy in other people. Like, is that what we're, we have to do? No, let's create a field of Boaz even there. Your school, your college, your neighborhood. Critique your culture. Create a new one. Allow God to do incredible things as the Ruths and the Naomi's of the world find the power of a kingdom culture. I'm going to ask the band to come up. They're going to lead us at a time of worship as we come to the Lord's table. And as they do that, I just want to say a word of prayer for God's insight to teach us these things. Lord, what we need uh, from you is the thing that we simply cannot provide. We are such a product of our own culture, Lord, that it is difficult for us to even see the areas that, that we're blind to. We're just not used to, to thinking in these ways, and, and we lack very often the ability to do it. And what we need is your spirit to convict our hearts, to turn our eyes into kingdom kinds of eyes. Help us see, Lord, the areas we fall short and give us the power that we need, Lord, to craft a new kingdom culture in the place of what we have long been enslaved to. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.